We're going to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Although I'm going to be reading scattered verses, so it'll be a little bit hard to follow, but still, if you have your Bible, turn there. And uh, we're finishing up a, a series that we started, or a message that we started last week. Of all the exciting things in the Bible, we last week were looking at the genealogy of Jesus in the end of Luke chapter 3. And believe it or not, we actually have another message on that. You wouldn't think. Uh, I'm entitling this message, woohoo, entitling this message, uh, The Birth of a New Humanity. I could also entitle it, Wasting Away in Margaritaville. Because what we're going to be looking at here, folks, is uh, this whole idea that some people say that there's a woman and a man to blame. Uh, but, you know, as you're looking for your lost shaker of salt, you really should just blame it on yourself. Uh, it's not very much of a secret, but that, you know, Woodland Hills is a super intelligent church. And we're not, you know, we, we don't brag on that, of course. It's just a fact. And, and we sometimes go kind of deep into stuff. Sometimes we're very practical. Sometimes we're very motivational. Other times we're quite theological. Because we believe that theology is important. Theology is about the, the worldview that you live in, the story that you live in, and the story that you live in, and how you interpret the world affects everything about your life. So sometimes we really get into some deep theological stuff if it's in the text. Believe it or not, there are some, there's a deep theological thing in the text here this morning, but it's not one that very many Western people would pick up on. And so my job this morning is to pull that out. You're going to need your thinking caps on for this message. We're going to be wrestling with this very deep. And uh, in fact, we'll be addressing what is one of the most paradoxical, puzzling, and some would argue contradictory teachings of the traditional church. We're talking about what does it mean for us to be in Adam, fallen in Adam? What does it mean? Uh, what does this phrase original sin mean? That's what we're getting into. Believe it or not, it's in the text. So let's listen to this. It says, now Jesus, starting with verse 23 of Luke, Luke uh, 3, now Jesus himself was 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, who was the son, and last week we saw it's really son-in-law, of Heli, a lot of, lot of names, who was the son of David, a lot of names, who was the son of Abraham, a lot of names, who was the son of Adam, no more names, the, who was the son of God. Then it says, and now remember this, in the original text, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions. It was all one thing. So right after this genealogy, Luke, without any interruption, goes into this. Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, or into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And I don't mean to spoil the story for anybody here, but... He actually did not give in to that temptation, and he, and he won. Just so in case you're wondering about that. I hate, hate to tell you the end of the story is ahead of time. Okay, we are looking at this genealogy, and now it segues into this uh, temptation narrative of Jesus. Last week, we looked at four of five questions that we're asking about this text. It's always good to ask questions of the text to get into it, to really you know, pull out the nuggets. So the questions were this. Question number one was, why is this genealogy here? Question number two is, why does this genealogy differ from Matthew's genealogy? Question number three is, is this intended to be an exhaustive genealogy? Question number four is, why does this genealogy go all the way back to Adam? 
And if those, if those are questions that you're interested in and you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the tape. Because now we're going to move on to the fifth question. The fifth question in some ways seems like the most boring of the questions, but at least to the most profound theological truth of all these questions. And the question is this. Why does Luke present his genealogy in reverse? Huh? You were wondering that, weren't you? I, I know it. So usually in a genealogy, you start with the oldest and you come to the present. And usually in genealogies, the typical way is to say the father of. So-and-so was the father of, was the father of, was the father of. Luke, he reverses that and he starts in the present and works his way back. And he uses son of throughout his genealogy. That's different. And the question I'm asking is why? And the answer that scholars uh, across the board give is this. He wants to end his genealogy with Adam and segue into the temptation narrative for a purpose. He wants to connect Jesus' temptation narrative with the name Adam. Why? Because he wants the reader or the hearer of this passage to immediately think back on, associate uh, temptation with Adam and, and go back to the temptation narrative of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Why does he want to do that? Scholars argue that Luke is intentionally doing this because he wants to contrast Jesus with Adam. The way Jesus responds to temptation is radically different than the way Adam responds to temptation. And why does Luke want to do that? And the answer is because Luke wants to present Jesus as the new Adam and thereby proclaim that, that Jesus is the founder of a new race. A new humanity is being birthed into the world. Luke has just introduced us to this king, uh, the king of kings through the, through the baptismal narrative. And now he's, now he's saying that this king of kings is not only the king of kings, but he's the new fountainhead, the new representative of a whole new humanity. And this loops into a theme that you find several other places in the New Testament where Jesus is presented as the new Adam, the new founder of a new race. Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians chapter 2 all in various ways, present Jesus as the new Adam. And what I want to do now is to flesh this out. What does it mean to say that human beings are in Adam? Because only if we understand that fully are we going to appreciate what the Bible means when it presents Jesus as the new Adam and presents us now as being in Christ. Do you follow me so far? So to get at this, we need to go back to the beginning. Way back in our primal history, there was Adam and there was Eve. Most of you know this story. And in Genesis 3, they were tempted by the devil and they blew it. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sent humanity into a tailspin. And as the Bible presents it, that was a catastrophic moment in world history. And that in some sense, we're all sinners because of that. So Paul says, for example, in Romans chapter 5, through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many, the multitude, in, all, in other words, all human beings except for Christ, were made sinners. Now the question I want us to ask, we like to ask questions here at Woodland Hills Church. The question I want to ask is, how is that possible? What does that mean? To say we're all made sinners in Adam, what could that possibly mean? This gets us to the teaching, the traditional church teaching on quote-unquote, original sin. How many of you have ever heard of original sin? 
Okay, about half of you have. If you come from a traditional background, you've heard about original sin. If you uh, come from certain backgrounds, you heard about very little else other than original sin. I was bombarded with original sin. Original sin doesn't mean like you found a creative way of sinning. Like, I've got an original sin. Let's do this. Original sin refers to the sin of Adam that is in some sense passed on to us. I remember sitting in my parochial school in third grade when the nun began to teach about original sin. And she said there that when we're born, we're born with this stain on our soul. And we're guilty. We, we're, you know, that we're guilty because our forefather Adam sinned. And the only way to get rid of that stain was to be baptized. And so then the question was asked, what happens if, if, if you're a baby and you die and you don't get that stain removed? Uh, what happens to you? And the response was, well, you, you are damned. You go to hell. Now, it, it's not the worst form of hell. It's called limbo. Still, you can't ever be with Jesus or ever with your parents if they're saved. And I remember in third grade, in my little theological brain, getting outraged at this. How is that fair? In fact, it, as, as, as it was presented to me in the traditional teaching, is that all the suffering in the world with the earthquakes and the bird flu, AIDS, you know, typhoid fever, uh, all, all of the natural evil in the world is the result of God is at least indirectly, if not directly, punishing us for Adam's sin. We're still being punished for what Adam did. And I remember thinking to myself, how is that fair? Where's the justice in that? How would you like to be a little kid who didn't choose to exist, you just all of a sudden find yourself existing for two days in a semi-conscious state as a, two, as a newborn would, and then you die, maybe some disease gets you or in a car accident, and now you're going to spend, according to the traditional teaching, uh, the rest of eternity in hell. Because it's your fault that you were born, and born a descendant of Adam. I don't get that. Some of you had that question, haven't you? Uh, where's the justice in this? How, you know, you're wasting away in Margaritaville looking for that stupid lost shaker of salt, and some people are saying that there's a woman to blame, but you know that it's really just your fault. And some people, when they hear this teaching, they're, they're like thinking, you Christians are, are wacko, and, and I really don't want to buy into your theology because it doesn't make any kind of a sense. There, there's there's, there's a, a problem here. It's not just a problem to our, our, our reason. Uh, it's a problem according to the Bible. I mean, I, I submit to you that this teaching, that somehow you're guilty for what someone thousands and thousands of years did, is just not a biblical teaching. Look at, 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 for example, Ezekiel chapter 18, where Ezekiel, the prophet, says this. The child will not share the guilt of the parent. And I'm thinking that would apply to the grandparent and the great-great-grandparent. And if you work it all the way back, it goes back to Adam. The child doesn't share in the guilt of the, you know, the, the, the ones that they descend from. Nor will the parents share in the guilt of the child. And some of us parents are probably thankful for that one. The righteousness of the child will be credited to them. And the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. You are responsible for what you individually choose to do when you could have and maybe should have chosen otherwise. That's what makes you guilty or praiseworthy. So we need to just get out of our brains this idea that guilt is transferable, that somehow, you know, we, we just by virtue of being born are guilty. But then what does? What does it mean when the Bible says that we have fallen in Adam? What is it getting at? We can't, we, we've got to wrestle with the passages because it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't mean that we can just sort of dismiss it. We've got to take it seriously. And what I want to submit to you is this. If you take this teaching seriously... It doesn't mean that you're guilty for what Adam or anyone else does. Guilt is not transferable. And I think the church tradition was wrong in that one respect. But 
At the same time, I want to submit to you that the church teaching on original sin and the church, church teaching on our identity in Adam has a profound truth that we, we in the modern Western world especially need to hear. Because according to the Bible, whereas you're only responsible for what you individually do or don't do, while that is true, it's also true that you are inextricably wrapped up with Adam and every other human being. And in a very real sense, there is what some call the biblical teaching of solidarity. We are in solidarity with one another, and in a very real sense, we stand or fall together. The Bible uh, treats every individual as responsible only for what they do, but at the same time, it teaches that our nature and to some degree our destinies are wrapped up with other people. The individual, I could put it like this, the individual from a biblical perspective is always part of a larger whole, and there's an organic relationship between the individual and the whole. By the whole, I mean any other social unit, like their family or their ethnicity or their tribe or their nation or ultimately the entire human race. Individuals are embedded in these social relationships and their, their, their destinies and natures are wrapped up with that. That's why you'll find, if you're a Bible reader, you've found times, and they really disturb us modern individualistic Western people, but you'll find times where entire families are punished because of what one person in the family did. That doesn't seem fair. You'll find sometimes entire generations are either blessed or cursed because of what one individual did. You'll find sometimes entire nations are blessed or cursed because of what one individual did. And sometimes you'll find that an entire race of people is blessed or cursed because of what an individual does. There's a profound truth we've got to get our Western individualistic minds around. And it's not easy because this is foreign to our way of thinking. So I'm going to ask you to be open-minded and to keep your thinking caps on. Here is the... Uh, most typical Western worldview, Western uh, modern worldview. We tend to define the individual over and against the whole. The whole being either the family or the tribe or the nation or the race. You're an individual insofar as you're not defined by your relationship to the whole. Whereas in the biblical worldview, and actually it's the worldview of most ancient cultures, the individual is defined as not over and against the whole, but rather as a part of the whole. Yes, you are an individual who uh, is responsible just for what you do, but at the same time, who you are is wrapped up in your family. It's wrapped up in your nation, your tribe. It's wrapped up in the whole human race. I can put it this way. In the, in the typical Western worldview, the whole is, is reducible down to the parts. Uh, what it is to have a whole is nothing more than a collection of individuals. A family is simply those four people. A nation is simply those, you know, 230 million people, uh, and, and so on. Whereas the biblical perspective, which is a much more holistic perspective, the whole is more than the sum of the parts. The whole, whether you're talking about a family or a nation or the human race, the whole is an organic reality. It is, to use an analogy, it's a sort of organism. And it's not reducible down to its constituent parts. So here's an example. My body is an organism, so is yours. My body is not simply the collection of my body parts. If you could take all my individual body parts and put them into a gunny sack, you wouldn't have my body. See, my body is not just the collection of the individual parts. It's also the organization of those parts, the interrelationship of those parts, how they all work together to carry out a certain kind of function. The organism is more than the sum of its parts. And from a biblical perspective, 
This, every social unit is a kind of organism. It is, I believe, a profound, important truth. If you don't see this, you're going to have a hard time making sense out of a lot of the Bible and even a hard time making sense out of a lot of, a lot of life. What's interesting is that in the last 50 to 100 years, a number of areas of science have confirmed the biblical perspective. I mean, all over the place we're seeing that reality is, is, is constituted by wholes that are more than the sum of their parts. Um, we find this in quantum physics. We find it in chaos theory, complexity theory, non-equilibrium uh, dynamics. Uh, in various ways, they're seeing that you can't reduce wholes to parts. Uh, we're seeing this in biology all over the place. Uh, you'll never understand fully what an individual bee is unless you're looking at a whole beehive. Right? You'll never understand what an individual ant is unless you're looking at its role within an ant colony. Uh, the, the individual influences the whole, and the whole influences the individual. Um, we're finding that, uh, 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 pertaining to human beings, uh, a number of mental health specialists are, are suggesting now, and there's good evidence for it, that you can never adequately or as effectively as you could address the health of an individual unless you're addressing the health of the social unit that they're a part of, especially with regard to families, young people and families. You're going to have a hard time bringing mental health to an individual unless you're looking at the health of the whole family unit. The individual and the organism they're a part of are mutually defining. The individual feeds into the whole, and the whole feeds into the individual. And you can't isolate one from the other. Uh, a lot of sociologists are, are seeing this with regard to group behavior. Uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, you can get 100 people. All of them individually would say that doing a particular thing is wrong, but those 100 people together, if there's the right momentum, they'll all together do it. Uh, individuals in crowds do things they never would do individually because there's a kind of a group think, as it were, or a group feeling, a esprit de corps that takes over the group and takes every individual uh, beyond themselves and engage, to engage in activity they otherwise wouldn't do. Uh, social groups are, are, are kind of an organism that have a life, take on a life of their own. Churches, local churches are a kind of organism. They're not simply a collection of individuals. According to the Bible, every local expression of the body of Christ is, is like a body. Paul uses this analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, one person plays the role of an eye, another person plays the role of a finger, another person plays the role of a toe or a mouth or what have you. And see, if any of those parts are missing, the whole body suffers. It's not just a bunch of individuals coming together and singing some songs and hearing a message. There is really now an organic unity on a spiritual level that unites us together. Which, if you, if you understand this, you'll understand this. This is so important. That your decisions about what you're going to do or not do in the kingdom are not just affecting you. They affect me. And they affect everybody. When you come to service and, and if you decide to worship or not worship, that's not just about you. Because you're not in the mood, you don't feel like it or whatever. No, that decision affects the whole. And the whole affects you. If other people are all getting into worship, it makes it harder for you not to worship. Uh, if you're not worshiping, to some degree that makes it harder for everyone else to worship. It either, you either intensify or dilute the Spirit of God in our midst. That's just one example of this. You got, I could put it like this. I need you to be all you can be for the, for the, for the kingdom of God if I'm going to be all I can be for the kingdom of God, and vice versa. We stand or fall together. You see how that is? 
So it's all in our self-interest to have the interest of the whole in mind. The individual feeds into the whole, and the whole feeds into the individual. Because it's an, it's an organism. It's an organic unit. We need everybody to be playing the role that God has called them to play. That's why taking that class, uh, Discover Your Spiritual Gifts, is, is so important. Nations, according to the Bible, form a sort of organism. The Lord sometimes treats them as though they were independent, autonomous individuals. Uh, if, you're, if you're not thinking biblically, and you're not thinking holistically, you'll never understand something like Nazi Germany. How was that possible? You take millions and millions of otherwise good and decent and normal citizens, and somehow they can work together to accomplish something that individually the vast majority of them never would want to have done. How is that possible? But if you understand, see, it wasn't like there's a bunch of individuals who just happened to wake up one morning and say, gee, let's try to exterminate all the Jews. It didn't happen like that. People don't act that way. But there was an organism, an organic whole, that began to be polluted for a wide variety of reasons. And the individuals were caught up in that. They still had free will. They still are responsible for what they do or don't do. Some opted out of that. But, it, but the organism took on a momentum and they began to go in a direction and ended up accomplishing something under the power of demonic spirits, I'm convinced, that the individuals in that hole never would have done. There's another important lesson to learn from Nazi Germany, and that is this. Under certain circumstances, certain people with certain aptitudes and certain sets of giftedness can rise up and play a much more influential role to the whole than they otherwise could play. They become representative individuals. They represent the whole. They embody the spirit of the whole. Adolf Hitler, in most historical circumstances, would have been a nobody. But because of where he was born and the particular situations, and I'm convinced that there's demonic powers orchestrating the quote-unquote perfect storm here, he brought this together and he had a power to influence the whole that far transcended what his ordinary capacity would be. And we find examples of that throughout history. And Adam, we'll later on see, is one such individual. He came to embody the spirit of the whole. In fact, this is the way some uh, of the German philosophers were talking at the time. There was a Volkgeist, uh, which was the folk spirit, the spirit of the whole. And Hitler was the incarnation of that. In a lot of his sermons, he would say, I am the German people. I embody the spirit of the Nazi party. And he did. And so the decisions he made were very influential in how things played out. Again, individuals are responsible for what individuals do or don't do. But individuals are always part of a larger whole, a family whole, a national whole, an ethnic whole, and ultimately a human race whole. If you don't understand that, a lot of the world will not make sense to you, and certainly a lot of the Bible won't make sense to you. For example, you'll never understand adequately race dynamics unless you're thinking biblically and holistically. In the individual Western mindset just can't capture the reality of race dynamics. Let me give you an illustration of this. A number of years ago, I went to a city to, uh, to minister a seminar in, in, in a particular church, predominantly white church. In this particular city, there was three Native American reservations. And on these reservations, there was uh, just an incredible, uh, you know, tragic level of drug abuse and alcoholism and crime and despair, and the suicide rate was the highest in America, I was told. And these sincere Christians wanted to reach out to these reservations. And they tried, but they had almost zero success. 
And they were very frustrated. We invite them to church, but they just don't come. We go there and, and try to, you know, help them. And, and we just don't get it. Why, why do they want to drink so much? Why don't they just stop that? Why, why don't they, you know, just do this, this job opportunities? Why don't they get into jobs and start, you know, just integrating with society? And, and they come to church sometimes and they'll even accept Jesus, but they don't come back. And we just don't get it. Now, I submit to you that the fundamental problem here that they were dealing with is this. They had a... With all of their sincerity, they had an individualistic worldview where they're seeing individuals as individuals and they were not thinking holistically and to that degree not thinking biblically. Coming at this from a Western European perspective, they, an American perspective, they, the worldview tends to be this. There are individuals born into this world. The playing field is roughly even. Oh yeah, there are some advantages and disadvantages, but this is after all the land of equal opportunity. And so, you know, we just don't understand why some individuals don't make right choices because other individuals do. And see, in that individualistic worldview, it becomes a complete mystery as to why two people born in roughly equal situations having been given equal opportunities, one says, hey, I think I'll be a great citizen and never commit a crime and become a Christian and, and be a good deed-doer, where the other person says, hey, I think I'll just choose to drink myself into the grave and then commit suicide. It's a complete mystery. But see, if you're thinking holistically and biblically, the mystery goes away. We need to approach this with a broader perspective. Consider the Native American people as something like an organism. They have an organic relationship there. And ask the question, what has happened to the organism? Because what happens to the organism is going to, at least indirectly, affect all the individuals within that organism. And what happened to the organism, of course, is this. Four or five centuries ago, Europeans came over here and they conquered them, they enslaved them, they broke every treaty they ever made with them, they dehumanized them, split their social fabric apart, and then put them on reservations. That is like stabbing an organism over and over again. And when you stab an organism, the organism suffers. And all the parts of the organism suffer. Even the parts that aren't being directly stabbed, because of the association, the organic relationship to the organism, they also suffer. Now, on top of that, in this particular town, think about this. There was a museum that the white folks had never even really noticed. It was a museum to General Custer. In fact, they had a statue to General Custer. And, uh, in fact, there was kind of a cowboy culture that permeated the city. And some people still talked about General Custer as a hero. But even if it wasn't that explicit, there's still the wild, wild west and how the west was won. And that permeated the culture. Now put yourself in the position of the Native Americans here, the American Indians here. That would be like being conquered by and being enculturated by a culture where Osama bin Laden, there's still a statue to him, and they're still thinking that what he did was a good thing. You see? That does something to your psyche. It does something to the organism. So it's not just that the organism was stabbed. The organism is still being stabbed, and you're going to have a hard time making progress on ministering to the people that are part of that organic whole unless you realize that. Now, it's not, this is so important, it's not a matter of an individual European today feeling guilty for what Custer or anyone else did in the 19th or 18th century. It's not, it's not a matter of saying you're guilty. Nor is it a matter of absolving some individuals for their, for, for their actions, the, the decisions they make, because they're part of an organism that's bleeding. But it is about having a worldview by which we can come to begin to understand what's going on in the world, a biblical worldview. It's becoming aware of the fact that, yes, you are an individual, but you're an individual that's related to an organic whole. And I, as a European, have to realize this. The organic whole that I'm related to is still, to some degree, benefiting 
from stabbing that organism that that person's related to. You see? And so what needs to happen, and they're still suffering because of the stabbing that went on in the past and still goes on today. It's just having that holistic perspective. And the only way to begin to minister in this situation is to have a kingdom perspective and do to the kingdom thing. And the kingdom thing is this. For the person who is benefiting from the stabbing to come under the person who's still suffering from the stabbing. That to use the power and privilege that you have by virtue of being uh, 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 really organically related to this organic whole and using that power to come under others and ministering to them. And if you're thinking holistically and not individualistically, you'll realize that I'm not, I'm not talking about a weekend outreach. I, this is not something that's going to be accomplished in four days. It's going to take decades. It's going to take generations. It might take centuries, but that's the kingdom approach. So it is for all race relations. Uh, relations. We'll, you just don't, you won't get the picture if you're thinking individualistically. Take the relationship between whites and African Americans in, in America right now. If you're thinking individualist, individualistically, you're just not going to get the dynamics. But see, if you're thinking holistically and organically, you begin to realize something. When you rip a people out of their indigenous culture, when you enslave them for three-plus centuries, when you sell off their family members to, to be slaves, when you get wealthy on the blood of their backs while singing songs about how God has blessed America as evidenced by our wonderful wealth, that does something to a people group. It does something to a psyche. It impacts them. You're stabbing the organism. And it's not about a a, a modern individual European feeling guilty for what people in the past did. It's not about that. Nor is it about absolving anyone of responsibility um, today. But it's about having a holistic biblical mindset about the reality of what's going on and to realize, in my case, that I'm part of an organic whole that's still benefiting from the past stabbing, whereas an African-American is still part of an organic whole that's bleeding from the past stabbing, So the kingdom approach has got to be for me to use my power and privilege that I have from the stabbing and come under those and minister in every way I can possibly imagine to manifest the love of Jesus Christ. And if you're thinking holistically, you realize that that's not a weekend outreach thing or a a missions trip to the inner city. It's It's something that's going to be here for decades and generations and possibly centuries, but that's what the kingdom of God is all about. What is true of the individual and their organic relationship to the family and their organic relationship to the tribe and the nation is also true, and this brings us full circle to the book of Luke, is also true of the entire human race. We are individuals for sure, but we're individuals who are part of, not over and against, but we're part of the human race. Uh, We're not guilty for what Adam did, but we can't help but be influenced by what Adam did. Adam, in a sense, was in the same position as Adolf Hitler. Because of the unique position he had in world history, he comes to represent the entire human race, comes to embody and and largely define the entire human race. So his decisions have ripple effects that impact the entire human race. And we are all part of that. Not guilty for what he did, but still under the influence of what he and everyone since has done. Adam's disobedience set in motion things that unlocked a diabolical influence into this world. Adam's and Eve's decision unleashed a demonic virus, as it were, into this world, one that we did not have an immunity system to resist. Adam's rebellion brought us into bondage to the principalities and powers. Adam's rebellion brought us into war with God and ultimately at war with one another. So now we are all as a race in Adam. That's part of the organic whole. We 
we contribute to the whole, and the whole influences us, and that whole thing is called uh, Adam. We're all in Adam the way you're in your family, the way you're in your ethnicity, the way you're in your nation. We are in Adam. And the corruption of the whole impacts us, and the corruption of us further impacts the whole. And see, if you understand that, you can understand how, though you're not guilty for what he did, you're born in a corrupted, fallen race with corrupt, corruption and pollution all over the place. So it is inevitable, though not ever necessary, that you will be a lost sinner. You're born with spiritual deformity and you're born with, with uh, breathing polluted air such that, according to the New Testament, you can't ever hope to save yourself. You're never going to live on your own willpower uh, a life that, is, that, that reconciles you to God. On your own in Adam, you are lost. On your own, the Bible says, you are a sinner. On your own, in fact, it says that you are part of a, of a race that is at war with God. In Adam, we are fallen. This is why in Adam, folks, we've got problems that we can't possibly solve. We've got uh, conflicts that we can't think our way out of. We keep thinking we're going to fix the world, but the more we try to fix it, we break it. Why? Because the problem is more fundamental than our ingenuity, our intelligence. We're in Adam. We're breathing polluted air. We're part of an organic whole that is corrupt. And insofar as we're in Adam, it is utterly hopeless. So go home and watch football and have a good day. God bless you. Maybe the Vikings will win. Okay, look at it. If I ended there, this would be a depressing message, which is why I'm not going to end there, ladies and gentlemen. There's a little bit of good news I have for us. You, know, you, don't, you don't want to hear it, dear. You don't want to hear it. Nah, you This brings us to Luke chapter 3. It's the kind of thing that we normally would just totally miss. But it's profound. Why did Luke put Adam last and then go into the temptation narrative? The answer is, folks, there is a new Adam in town. Praise God. There's a new Adam. Jesus came into this polluted world to minister to this polluted organism he didn't come to start a new religion, and he, for crying out loud, he didn't come to solve all of our social and political problems. He didn't come to give us a perfect form of government. Jesus Christ came to do nothing less than to start over again, to start a new humanity, a new human race. Like our first founder, Jesus was tempted, but unlike our first founder, he did not fail. This new founder of the new humanity fought the good fight, and he won. And whereas our first founder plunged us into ruin, this new founder plunges us into victory. And through his obedience, he is undoing what the old Adam did. As the old Adam's disobedience defined the organic whole of humanity, so also this new Adam's obedience is defining the whole of a new humanity. That's why I want to go back to a verse I read earlier, but read the whole verse. Romans chapter 5. Where Paul said, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the multitudes were made sinners, just in the same way through the obedience of the one man the many, the multitudes, will be made righteous. Jesus Christ is the founder of a new race. In Adam, Paul says, In Adam we were all far off, we were corrupted, we were lost. But in Christ, Something radically new has happened. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 2, which is probably the most profound verses on this whole theme in the Bible. Paul says this, Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity 
out of the two. And he's referring there to Jews and Gentiles with all of their warfare, which is simply just the paradigm for all racial, ethnic, national tension. He created out of the two one new humanity, and he thus made peace. And in one body, look at, look at the organic language there. In one organism, himself, he has reconciled both of them to God through the cross. By which, by the way, he also put to death their hostility. Which hostility? Their hostility towards God and their hostility towards one another. This is the new humanity. We as a race were in Adam, but now we as a race are in Christ. And all things, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. In Adam we were lost, but in Christ, this new humanity, we are found. In Adam we were corrupted, but in Christ we're being restored and healed. In Adam we were under the oppression of the devil, but in Christ we've been set free, for the truth shall set you free. In Adam we were losers, but in Christ, in this new humanity, we are victors. In Adam we were at war with one another, but in Christ we've made peace with one another. In Adam we were at war with God, but in Christ... We've made peace with God. Behold, all things are new. Old things have passed away. There's a new race that's out in the world. A new humanity created in the likeness of Christ Jesus. What's going on in the world right now, folks, so so most people don't realize it? But I'll let you in on the secret. There is an invasion going on. Did you ever see the the, the TV show Invasion? started last year. Uh, I, I saw half of one episode. But, uh, so I should probably not make doing an analogy on it, but my wife told me what it was about. There is, uh, okay, there's these aliens that come in, and they're taking over human DNA. The person looks the same, and even to some degree thinks the same, though they know something's different, but there's like a new DNA. The old person's, you know, leaving, and then there's a, there's a new person in town, new DNA. And slowly, one at a time, this alien race is trying to further evolve humanity by implanting new DNA. That is very close to what's actually going on in this world. But the alien is Jesus Christ. And whereas in the movie it's a bad thing, we don't want these aliens to take over. In the New Testament, this is a good thing. There's there's a a new Adam in town, and he started a a new humanity, and there's new DNA that's being piped into people's, whoever will let them. He's piping this new DNA, this new life form into their life. And, 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 And Jesus Christ, when he comes in, he's like a mustard seed. It starts small. He starts to change your orientation, you know, your outlook. You're, you're, you're less obsessed with self-centered things and you're more centered on God and you start to notice other people. He changes your attitude. Instead of bitterness, you start to find yourself forgiving. And instead of judgmental thoughts, you find yourself blessing people. And he starts changing your thoughts and changing your minds and gradually starts changing your actions even. And, and as your actions change, it changes your relationships. As it changes your relationships, it begins to change the world. And that's how this mustard seed new humanity, this kingdom revolution, is gradually taking over the world, spidering very quietly. Most people don't know what's going on. But, but Christ is spidering out throughout the whole world, changing people one at a time. And, and whereas the, the bad news on the movie is good news because in, in the New Testament... Because the old Adam, folks, the old Adam, our organic unity in Adam was ugly. It was ugly. But the new humanity in Christ Jesus is beautiful. It's glorious. It's about forgiveness. It's about peace. It's about love. It's about, it's about, it's about getting life from Christ. In the old Adam, we, we, we went after false ways of getting life. Pathetic ways of little pathetic idols. How do I look? How am I performing? What do you think? But in the new Christ, there's life from Him. And that was why we can live life out of celebration. The key to this whole thing, here's, the, here's the, the, the one thing. There's a new organic hole that's on here. 
But Jesus, unlike the invaders on the movie, Jesus is never coercive. He respects your personhood, even if it's going to harm you. You've got to let him in. And, uh, and surrender. It's, about, it's not about joining a religion or anything like that. It's about surrendering the core of your being over to him and saying, Lord, I want to be part of this new humanity. I want to have this new life form called the kingdom of God birthed in me.